0: This morning we are in Mark chapter 6 and I'm only going to spend time in about the first 13 verses. It's actually a very long chapter. It includes the feeding of 5,000. It includes Jesus uh, walking on water, Uh, but I'm only going to talk about the first 13. And as I was thinking about this even last night, about uh, when we read the Bible... You know, what should what should our mindset be as we open the Word of God and, and read it privately as part of our own devotions? And it struck me that when we read, we need to ask the question, what does this tell me about God? When I read this passage or any passage, does this tell me something about God himself? What does this passage tell me about the person of Jesus Christ? And thirdly, what does this passage, whatever it might be, what does it tell me about life in general? What does it have to say for us here in 2017 in the culture in which we exist? What does that say to me? And then I think we also need to ask those questions, as I said, in a very personal way. God, what do you have to say to me from these verses? And what do you maybe have to say to us as a church? And so, I encourage you to keep that in the back of your mind as we look at these first 13 verses. Because in essence, the first uh, little section is really talking about Jesus and his own ministry. And the challenges that even Jesus faced... Not everybody uh, was willing to accept him for who he was. The second half of it talks about the very specific call that Jesus placed on the lives of 12 men. And in Mark chapter 6, he takes these men, divides them up, and he says, I want you to go out two by two and spread the gospel and preach a message of repentance. And so we might say, well, none of that seemed to have anything to do with me. But I think as we look at what's in here, we will find that God has something to say to us and that God has something to say to us as his people. So I'm going to read the first 13 verses, likely in a different translation than what you have, but feel free to follow along in your Bible. It says, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. And the next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And they asked, where did he get all this wisdom? Where did he get all this power to perform such miracles? And then it's interesting, instead of saying then they believed, it says then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us, and they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. And then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them, which would seem to be a miracle. And he, Jesus, was amazed at their unbelief. So resistance that Jesus got in his own town from his own family. Second section, then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people. And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed Many sick people anointing them with olive oil. First 13 verses of chapter 6. And it's interesting, as Jesus returns to his hometown after traveling, teaching, preaching, performing miracles, he returns to what we might say a less than enthusiastic welcome by his own town. That even his own family don't know exactly what to make of Jesus. They might say, you know, we know you. We know your parents. We know your brothers and sisters. At best, you should maybe be a journeyman carpenter. It's interesting that they do not question his teaching or authority of his teaching. It's like when they hear him speak in the synagogue, they are amazed at what he says. They don't deny the reality of his miracles, but they're unsure or unwilling to accept who he said he was. So Jesus faced resistance close to home. I think there are people and I think there are places where it's tough to make inroads for the kingdom of God. And for Jesus, his hometown would have been one of those places. But as I read this and other parts of the gospel, it did not keep Jesus and it did not keep the disciples from going to those difficult regions, and maybe even difficult people. To me, it's a practical example of what Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 4, where he said, you're going to find hard soil. When you present the message of Jesus Christ, you're going to find hard, resistant soil, you're going to find rocky soil, you're going to find thorny soil, and you're going to find fertile soil, but we're giving all of that soil the same message. There is no place where Jesus said to them, don't bother going there because they're hard people. Don't bother going to that town because they're, they're not going to receive you well Jesus says, the possibility of resistance is very real, but I am sending you to those places as well. And I thought about that a little bit, about thinking about where we live, here in this beautiful place called Lake Country. And as I read what Jesus and what his message to the disciples was to go preach the gospel to all these places. And I think we always need to be careful not to make assumptions about people, and we need to be careful not to make assumptions about places unless we have stepped out in some tangible way and given the invitation to hear the gospel. There have been times when I have heard Lake country described as tough soil. I don't know if that's true. At one point, I think, uh, well, I don't think, I know, uh, Willow Park had a bus that would come during the week and we'd pick up young people from George Eliot and bus them into Highway 33 for youth. And I think those who worked in that capacity would say, oh, my goodness, those kids that come from Lake Country are tough to deal with. They weren't kids coming from church. They were simply kids coming from Lake Country who found out there's exciting things happening out at Highway 33. Let's go. And they were a challenge. But as I think about Lake Country, and it may actually be true for many, many places within this great country of ours, I think it's not a valid assumption to make, well, this is a hard place, these are difficult people. Because my guess is most people in Lake Country have never received a personal invitation. Nobody's ever knocked on their door and said, Hey, you ever consider God? Ever consider coming to church? That kind of hit me as I was thinking about that this week, and it hit me in a very personal way. I don't want to apply guilt to anybody sitting in front of me. It did put a bit of guilt in my own heart. The disciples were given. A very unique calling. And I would say the 12 disciples, and I would throw Paul into that mix, continue to hold a very unique position in the unfolding story of the church of God. The New Testament says Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith, built then on the foundation of the apostles. These men set apart for the kingdom of God, became the men of the early church. They are our foundation, and they remain our foundation today. These men of little faith, even when they were with Jesus, they didn't quite understand who Jesus was or what Jesus was up to, what he was talking about. And so Jesus quite often characterized him as... Men of little faith, even though they were men with him literally all the time. But they became men of great faith. When Jesus was actually no longer physically with them, these men were willing to suffer incredibly difficult things for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in Mark 6, Jesus gives these 12 a unique calling and special Authority. He says, you will deliver the demon possessed. You will have the power to heal the sick. But Jesus truly, I think, is saying to those 12, even in this context, you are not going to generate that power or that authority on your own, I am giving it to you. That authority, that power is mine, Jesus says, I am giving it to you. It was not about special training. It was not about them trying to imitate what they had seen Jesus do. And it certainly wasn't about the depth of their faith, because in this same chapter, Jesus calls those disciples Men with hard hearts and lacking in faith. But Jesus sends them out. He gives them as a gift. It was not something these 12 somehow managed to achieve. It was something they received. And that idea when I was thinking about it this week struck me so much about our own life as children of God. There is much that we can achieve, even on our own effort. In our relationship with God and within the church, we need to be willing to receive. And the dis- power the disciples had was that which they received from Jesus. John fifteen five says this. Jesus says, apart from me, you can actually do nothing. You might say, well can see people do quite a bit of stuff. I think Jesus is talking about anything that's lasting value within the kingdom of God. But he says in that same verse, that same passage, if you remain in me, you will produce much fruit. So I thought about that. It was a reminder to me. I think it's a reminder to the church that there is much we can achieve on our own effort. Things that may even appear successful, but are not necessarily effective in making us children of God with secure faith and deep roots. I've been reading a book, it's called Old Paths, New Power, by a fellow named Daniel Henderson who himself uh, was, by all means, what you would call in Christian circles, a very successful pastor. His church had grown from 200 to 2,000. And he was speaking at a conference, and he was talking to another man who had a, what we would say, a huge and successful ministry. And as the author talked to this pastor about his church... Uh, the pastor was rather overcome because he saw a lot of what had happened in the church and was asking the question, I'm not sure how much of this is human effort. I'm not sure how much of this is the work of the Spirit of God within people and within the church. And so this author had asked them, how then do you explain all that has happened in your church over the last decade? And the pastor said, well, I worked the formulas. I knew the formulas for growth, for land acquisition, relocation in a growing area, children's programming, youth events, attractive worship services, staff development, high-impact sermons. Yet if I were to stand before Christ today, I don't know. If what I have done is gold, silver, and precious stones, which is what God would love to call each one of us, things that last, things of deep faith, gold, silver, and precious stones. And the pastor said, I'm not sure if I've created that or whether I've created wood, hay, and stubble. Author goes on to say, you can build significant organizations, spiritual or otherwise, on the sheer dynamic of leadership and vision. Ministry can actually be achieved quite impressively in today's society, but the old paths that lead to new power compel us to embrace ministry as something to be received. I'm sure that pastor still loved his church, but I think it's a question many pastors and maybe whether it's small or large church ask, are we creating and forming people of deep faith, deep roots? Leadership, vision, strategies, programs are all things that man can create. In this book, he says entrepreneurs do that. Politicians do that. And churches do that. But in terms of things that matter, creating people of secure faith, people who are willingly identifying with Jesus Christ, people who embrace life as a calling from God, These things that last come from a heart and a life that is open to receive from God. What does that mean, to receive from God? There's a few things I just want to suggest. Number one, I would love for us to be precious stones within the kingdom of God. Gold, silver, precious stone, things that are going to last. What do we build that on? And I think we need to be a people who pray. That God truly calls us into communication with him. Not just about asking our requests, which we need to do. God wants us to communicate with him. And in communicating with him, we will receive from him. We need to be people who love the word of God. Um, and who read it, uh, and if that's a struggle for you, uh, I would even suggest find a, a simplified version of the Bible. I quite often use New Living Testament, New Living Translation. It seems to speak the truth of these passages in such a clear way, but we need to be people who love the Word of God, that God has revealed himself in his Word through the person of Jesus Christ. We need to read that book. Number three, we need to be people who love and serve one another. Um, And I see that within Creekside Church. Uh, We don't exist here in Creekside without serving one another in everything we do. And I see in Creekside an increasing desire of people to truly love one another in practical ways, and I'll talk about that a bit more. But number four, and maybe this is really what sort of, this idea is what hit me the last week and a half as I've been looking at this passage about Jesus sending people out. We need to be people who actually believe they're on mission as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And I look at those four things that I think, you know, I see three of those in evidence often. And I will say this, even at a personal level, I could use a bit of a push when it comes to number four. And it's, I believe, one thing to live out our faith. And there's a whole pile of verses that talk about living as lights. Walking in a manner that's worthy of our high calling, that by our moral character, our love. And so I might say, well, I'm good with those parts. I'm just a bit uncomfortable with number four. These 12 that Jesus called and sent out in twos, Uh, It's interesting, they set out with nothing but what you might call the absolute bare essentials. And as they would have entered towns and villages in that region two by two, uh, there would have been nothing impressive about them as they walked into town. Nothing. Even their physical needs... Really, God is saying, don't worry about it. I will supply your physical needs. But when I read that chapter and that section, God actually provided their physical needs through hospitality. And I think uh, hospitality, opening our homes, inviting people over, is such a powerful tool and expression within the church of God about our commitment to love and serve one another. That I think hospitality in many ways can achieve what programs will never achieve. And so I say, bless you, those of you who open your homes to people. And I encourage you to do that. I think you're doing within the church of God that which will build up the faith of men and women, boys and girls. So Jesus says, you know what? Bless those who welcome you. Bless those who listen to you. Bless those who open their doors to you. Shake the dust off your feet if a town rejects you and leave them to their fate. It's noteworthy that money was not to be part of their mission. It would be very interesting if churches had no money. What would, our, what would our missions look like, feel like? Would we say, oh my goodness, we're hooped? Or would we find that God will provide for us in different ways? I think it's an interesting question. You know, when I read that, I can sort of skim over very quickly this fact about, well, don't take this, don't take that, don't take money. But I don't think it's a minor point, even within the kingdom of God. Jesus likely knew that people would pay dearly for physical healing. That in that day, and even in our day, you could likely name your price. And people would be willing to pay it if they could be healed. And it's a reminder by Jesus, I think, the authority with which you will heal, he says to the disciples, it's not about you, it's the authority that I am giving to you. Don't turn it into an opportunity for profit. I thought about that, I think there is a for-profit danger in the kingdom of God. Don't think it matters what continent you're on. There's a for-profit danger within the church. And it strikes me that so often that danger seems to exist around the area of healing. Those who play on the weak, those who play on the vulnerable and the desperate, those who manipulate people for the sake of personal profit, in Timothy, Paul said to Timothy, avoid those people in the church. Those who are lovers of self, those who are lovers of pleasure, those who are lovers of money, stay away from them within the church. And so God, uh, Jesus says to the disciples, take nothing with you. Everything you need, will you will receive. So focus on the mission that I have given you. Preach repentance. Ask people to turn to God. And it's interesting when you read responses, even in other gospels, of disciples who came back from that mission who were amazed at what they were able to do Because of what they had received from Jesus. These 12 had a a special and I would say specific call on their life. Given by Jesus directly to them. A calling upon which the church was built and it continues to be built. And if you say, well, are we called to do exactly the same thing? I'm going to say, no, that is not my message. But we as children of God have also received a special call. It's a call to be living witnesses. It's a call to be walking ambassadors for the kingdom of God. That as I leave my home every morning, I do so as an ambassador of an invisible kingdom, but a kingdom that is supposed to also be tangible. That our lives, how we love one another in the church, our unity, our faith, should set us apart and should be something that the world notices. So I ask myself, how committed am I to that calling? I believe there are many within Creekside Church that that is actually the desire of their heart, the desire of their life to be followers of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses, and we talked a bit about this at Alpha on Thursday night. It's a verse uh, in Micah where God says, I have told you, O man, people, what I require of you. To do justly, so do what's right, do what's honorable. To love mercy, so how we interact with people are people of mercy, of forgiveness. And walk humbly with your God. I actually love that verse. And at times if I ask myself, okay, am I on track? Am I doing what God has asked me to do? I think about that verse. Are you doing justly? Are you loving mercy? And are you walking humbly with your God? The question I asked this morning more probably for me than for you, am I also willing to use my words? How willing am I to trust God who said that he would be with us to give me the words to say? And uh, in a church, I would say that's a thought and a prayer that needs to begin with me. As a pastor, how willing am I outside the comfort of the church to truly put myself out there for the sake of the kingdom of God? whether I'm rejected or not. I'm going to play um, about four to five minutes from a a talk that Francis Chan gave uh, just actually, I think, a few weeks ago, February of 2017. He's speaking at a conference. Francis Chan also, um, you know, by all evaluations, was a very successful pastor, and continues, I think, to be a great voice within the Christian church. Uh, he's speaking at a conference about the church and about what are we doing, and it's pretty direct, it's pretty, yeah, direct. Um, I will say before we play it, he starts off with an illustration of a huge church who does a massive Christmas program. And at first, when I listened to that part, I thought, well, I can't play that because people will think, oh, you're you're bad-mouthing living nativity. And I'm not. It just happens to be that that was the illustration, the reference that he used. But I just encourage you for the next few minutes to just to listen to what Francis Chan has to say.
1: I went and I I listened to this pastor talking about his ministry. And it was awesome. You know, as a new guy, you know, you want to listen to the guy with the big church. And go, okay, what do they do and what's going on over there? And he started to talk about their Christmas program. And they had an amazing Christmas program. And he just talked about the hundreds of thousands of dollars they put into this to make it excellent. Because they wanted to be the best for God. I thought, man, that's so cool. And then he talked about all the people that showed up. And he talked about how people from the congregation would come every week and they would rehearse, you know, 10, 15 hours a week for months so that when this program happened, you know, there would just be a ton of fruit. It would be excellent, a gift to the Lord. And I thought, man, that's really, really good. But I was a new pastor. I had just started ministry. And, and I remember going up to that guy afterwards and saying, Hey, I just got, a, I have a little question. You know, I think it's so cool what you're doing. I hope to do that one day. But, you know, you talk about all of these believers coming to the church building to rehearse for this Christmas musical, like 10, 15 hours a week for months. I go, I'm figuring all this stuff out. I go, if they spent that 10 or 15 hours a week getting to know their neighbors and inviting them over for dinner and sharing their faith with them, wouldn't they have accomplished a lot more for free? And, and I, remember, I still remember what he said to me. He looked at me and goes, well, of course. But people aren't willing to do that. And I go, oh, yeah, that's true. Like, that was my response. But that's not my response anymore. Now my response is, but that's stupid. <laughs> you know. So we can't, we can't change the whole system of what God called us to do of going out and making disciples because people aren't willing to do it. So therefore, rather than getting together and praying for that courage so that we actually would reach out and make disciples, instead we, we create a whole different program so it doesn't require courage. And I said, that's lame. Okay, so they won't go and get out, you know, to speak to their neighbors, but they'll dress up as a reindeer, so let's do that, you know, and that won't require courage, and let's just circumvent this whole thing of, man, don't you see, here's Peter and John who were terrified. The world was astonished by their courage, astonished by their boldness, and they get together and pray for more courage. The apostle Paul who had so much courage. You know, we think of him as one of the most courageous men in history. We see him at the end of Ephesians going, Pray for me. You guys, I need your prayers to, to speak boldly as I ought. Because I need that type of boldness. Pray for me. Peter and John, get together. Pray for me. And yet what we've done is not get together and say, Give me courage because I know I need to talk to this guy at work. Give me courage because I know I'm not going out and making disciples. I'm scared. Let's just admit it. I'd rather do just about anything than share my faith and be rejected. I remember sitting at a Christian college and, and being challenged about faith. And I thought, wow, what's the one thing I really do not want to do? And that's go out and talk to people about Jesus that I know I would be rejected by. Or the chance of being, you know, rejected by. I didn't want to do it. And so we busy ourselves with all these other things and and kind of say, oh, you know what? But I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Meanwhile, we all know it's just scary. It's difficult. But man, until we all just are honest with that and get together and say, man, pray for me because this is what I'm here on the earth to do. And yet I don't want to do it. I don't want to be rejected. I hate being rejected. I don't know what to say when I come into those situations. I I, I get all nervous. My heart starts pounding. I don't even know how to start the conversation. I don't know how to get it onto the topic of God. And then when I get onto the topic of God, I'm scared they're going to ask me questions that I can't answer. And let's talk about those things. And let's pray for the courage and then go out and do it. Rather than, well, let's come up with a whole new system again And create a way in which it's cool and we won't be rejected and it won't be hard and it won't require courage.
0: Um, I listen to things like that and I I think about, in a way, how simple things are supposed to be. Um, And the attractiveness sometimes of creating other stuff to do. And even sometimes in a church feeling like it's your responsibility to create stuff to do. Church is growing. We need to get some programs. So there's such, to me, there was such truth in what he was talking about, uh, about what we need. And our willingness to both receive from God and then willingness to live it out. So I would ask that you pray for me. That you would pray for us as a church, that we would be people of prayer, that we would be people who are faithful to the word of God, that we want to live that out. Pray that we would continue to be people who love one another. And then pray for boldness to hold the torch high, and not hide it. And then rely on God to accomplish his mission in us and through us in this place called Lake Country. Uh, Pastor Sandy Calero at the Lions Church and, and myself, we, we kind of challenged each other to knock on doors in the community to uh, invite people to Alpha. And so, to a limited degree, we have done that. And, and I can remember still uh, driving up to the top of Sunburn Hill and thinking, oh my goodness, I have no idea what I'm going to do when I knock on the first door. Uh, but, I, but I did. I've got many more streets to go. Uh, and I felt this, and I don't want to make it overly, overly Spiritual, but I, I really felt a leading simply to give an invitation. So I said to people, do you have 10 seconds? I'd like to invite you to Alpha. And I had a little bookmark, that's Creekside Church, and I said, you know what? This is a church that we're part of. This is where we meet. I'd love to invite you to come. Um, I would love it if, you know, there's no house in, in Lake Country that hasn't had somebody knock on their door and say, have you ever considered coming to church? Have you ever considered the reality of God? I'm not, I don't want to place that on all of you, but it's something that I feel God is placing on me and asking, well, are you willing to do that? I would say I would never actually was at a door where I felt truly like rejected in a strong way. Um, But I want to continue to do that. I want us to, as a church, continue to grow as children of God. I want us to be people who are gold, silver, and precious gems in the eyes of God. People for whom faith is Everything. So I just encourage you to consider that. I ask that God would continue to work in your life to bless you, that you would be amazed by his love for you as his children, and that he would encourage us to uh, be a bit bolder than we tend to be. I'm going to invite the, the worship team up and i uh, going to pray. And Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, just for this, these short verses and Mark chapter 6, I just pray, God, that you would speak those into my own heart and my own life. Uh, Help me not to care so much about uh, how I will be perceived or received and simply be more willing to step out, uh, trusting you, God, to provide what I need. Uh, Father, while we're praying, I want to pray, too, for uh, those in our church Uh, who are sick. Pray for the touch of God uh, even on their physical body. But Father, also just for a continual touch of God that we would even our suffering uh, be open to receive from you. That you would speak into our lives. Uh, Cause us to get a vision of things eternal. I pray specifically for Maggie and uh, Father that the test that she will Uh, receive in March, we pray, Father, that those would go well. Father, we pray and ask you for healing for Maggie in the name of Jesus. We want to pray for that little girl that Jonathan and Nikki mentioned, for little Ruby, uh, that, Father, a, a miracle of healing would happen in her life, and we bring those things to you, God, as our Father. We thank you for your presence here this morning in your church, in Jesus' name. Amen.